Welcome back, everyone. Today is lecture number 12. We're going to talk about infection basics. This begins the second half of our course where we focus on how viruses cause disease. And so far in this course, we have talked about studies that have been done to understand how viruses reproduce in cells and culture in the laboratory. And of course, that doesn't tell us everything about how viruses work. Uh, in particular, the genome has to establish itself in a population to endure. In our cells and culture in the lab, that's not even a requirement. But in nature, in whatever host there is of the virus, the virus has to establish itself. Otherwise, it is out of existence. The one thing that is in common, however, is that in either the infected cell or the infected host, the virus must get in and it must get out. And we're going to talk about that a bit today. As I've said before, we live in prosper in a cloud of viruses. And most encounters we have with viruses have little or no consequence. And in fact, many infections are inapparent or asymptomatic. It's the same outcome, two different words to describe the same thing, that you're infected and you don't feel anything. You don't feel sick. And we have very specific words to describe this. First, we have signs of infection. These, this is evidence of disease that can be observed by others. So much of what viruses do uh, is, are to cause symptoms which are apparent only to you. You can feel a fever. You can feel body aches, chills, and so forth, and so forth a headache, nausea. Other people can't know that unless you tell them. So that's a symptom. A sign is what others can measure. They could measure your fever. They could measure your lymphocyte count. You know, all kinds of, of um, they could measure RNA levels by PCR. And you might not know that the viral RNA is reproducing in you, but you could measure it. That would be a sign. All right. So signs and symptoms are very important. And when we talk about inapparent or asymptomatic infections, we're really talking about the absence of symptoms because we know things are going on in an inapparent infection. The virus is multiplying. We know that. Here's an example. West Nile virus was not in the U.S. until 1999, where it entered in New York City. Uh, and we, we still don't know how it got here, but the virus that ended up here was one base different in its genome from a virus on a goose farm in Israel. I don't know how it got here, but you know the viremia in West Nile is not enough to have a mosquito pick up the virus and transmit it to someone else. So maybe a mosquito came for the ride. Arrived in New York City in 1999, and by October 2004, about a million people had been infected. And we know this because we did surveys for antibodies. We, we draw blood from people, take the serum, and measure antibodies and assays for blocking infection that we'll talk about in a few lectures. We know that febrile illness developed in just 20% of infected people, and central nervous system illness developed in about 1% of infected people. So not everyone got sick. And how do we know this? Well, we can ask them, were you sick? We know you're seropositive. Do you remember having a fever? And we can see that many people were infected without being ill. All right, no obvious disease to them. 
because we can't measure everyone all the time. So we ask them, did you have a fever? Um, and they say no. And this is a problem. These asymptomatic infections or inapparent infections are, are a problem because you can't stop an epidemic. You can't recognize it. And that is the problem with SARS-CoV-2. There are a lot of either mild or asymptomatic infections. This, by the way, is the spread of West Nile throughout the U.S., starting in New York State. And you can see slowly spreading across the country. And now, of course, every state has West Nile uh, disease. It's a mosquito-borne infection, which we'll talk about uh, a bit later. And it's caused by the flavivirus, West Nile virus. Now, of course, SARS-CoV-2 gives us another example of asymptomatic or inapparent infections. 81% of all infections are either mild or asymptomatic. Asymptomatic, it really depends on what study you look at. 20 to 40%, that's of that 80%. So 20 to 40%, nobody knows they're infected, yet they could be PCR positive or antibody positive later. All right, and then 40% very mild. And that's the problem when so many people are walking around, they feel fine. They may have chills. They may have a little sore throat. They don't think twice about walking around. This is early in the outbreak before we told everyone to wear face masks. It spreads the disease, spreads the infection. So asymptomatic, inapparent infections are an issue. SARS-1 wasn't an issue because 50% of people you were in the hospital at the peak of virus shedding. And so it was harder to spread that. We stopped that in 8,000 people. The other concept that's very important is this incubation period. That has a very specific meaning. It is the period before symptoms are obvious. What is a symptom? What you feel, only you can feel. Obviously, signs are there. If you looked, you could see viral genomes replicating. You could see an immune response. So something's going on during the incubation period. The virus is reproducing you. You get infected. You have a few virus particles or a few hundred or a few thousand. They're starting to multiply. Uh, and then you have the onset of disease to you. You get a headache. You get a sore throat, cough, etc. Now, an, an important concept here is that it depends on the virus whether or not it is transmitted during the incubation period. Some viruses are, some viruses are not. For example, Ebola virus infection is not, the virus is not transmitted during the incubation period. It is only transmitted after, at or after the onset of symptoms. And so you could travel somewhere, get Ebola virus infection in Africa, travel somewhere, and then develop the disease later. And that's what happened in 2015. A number of people went to other countries and got sick there. So we had no idea that they were sick. But they weren't transmitting in the airplane when they were flying over. That was the incubation period. Uh, SARS-CoV-2, we are transmitting during the incubation period as well. So that's an important concept. And here are some incubation periods of viral infections. They range from short to very long. Typically, the short incubation periods reflect uh, infections where the virus replication at the primary site is producing the symptoms like respiratory infections, right? You have all these influenza, rhinovirus, et cetera. Um, and then um, longer and longer and longer, all the way up to 30 to 100 days for rabies. That's why we can vaccinate 
even after you have a dog bite from a rabid dog, and warts of papillomaviruses. SARS-CoV-2 is, is uh, between 1 and 14 days. Some, some have big ranges like that, as you can see here. The ones with the longer incubation periods, like measles, typically that's because the virus has to go somewhere and it has to go farther away to make the symptoms, like the rash of measles. It takes longer because the virus starts in the respiratory tract, gets into the blood, and travels to the skin. So that just takes time. So that is the incubation period. And again, whether you are transmitting or not depends on the particular virus. Uh, there's another term here that's important, which you may encounter. Prodrome is the period of symptoms uh, before those characteristics of the disease. So you may have a fever. Many virus infections cause a fever. It's not characteristic of the disease. What would be characteristic? Well, would like the rash of measles. Right? You have a fever before the rash. That's the prodrome. And then you have the actual symptoms of the disease, which would be the rash. Now, a few terms that we need to talk about, because these are used and thrown about in the mainstream media, and people really don't know what they mean, including the people delivering the news. So let's, here you go, this slide, you'll know where it is for the rest of your life. Morbidity, mortality, incidence, fatality, and have some icons here. Each icon is 10,000 people. Uh, the orange one means you're infected, you're PCR positive. And then the red, you have signs or symptoms, which can also, and, and these people with signs and symptoms are PCR positive also, confirmed infected. So remember, it's infected versus infected with signs or symptoms. And then we have incidence, morbidity, mortality, and uh, case fatality rate. And then there's another one down here we'll get to. All right, incidence is simply the number of people infected over the number in the population, and there's a time factor per, per month, per, per year, whatever you want to do. That's what incidence is. Morbidity rate, the number of people who are sick over the number in the population, total in the population. So morbidity means sick, and of course mortality means dying. The number of deaths divided by the number of population. These last two are, are ones we've been hearing during the last pandemic. Case fatality rate. The number of deaths over the number of confirmed infected, PCR confirmed. So here we have incidence, 25%. You can do the math and add it up. Morbidity, 10%. Mortality rate, 5%. Case fatality rate would be 25% here. We have 10,000 people here who are dead. So that is confirmed infected. So that's really important to understand that. We don't test everyone in any outbreak. And so there are always more people infected than we know, including in the current outbreak. We don't test everyone. We probably are missing four or five times the number of people who are infected. And only one day when we do extensive serological surveys, we'll find out how many people are actually infected. And that is captured in the infection fatality rate, the number of deaths or the number of actual infections. You have to get the bottom there by extrapolating and doing statistics. You have to do some serological surveys. You have to get an idea of seropositivity in your population. And remember, different populations can differ. Throughout this outbreak, we have seen higher seropositivity in some populations versus others. And so you cannot assume it's the same everywhere yet. So this infection fatality rate is going to be lower. It's a percentage is going to be lower than the case fatality rate 
uh, because it has a bigger denominator. For, for the current outbreak, I think slightly less than 1%. Now, the as we'll see, the CFR can, can vary uh, a bit depending on many factors. The other variable that's important is the basic reproduction number, R0, which is calculated by this formula. Uh, tau is the probability of infection uh, given contact. That C is the average duration of, of contact between the infected and uninfected host, right? So if you're in contact with someone for 15 minutes versus an hour, two hours, and then D is the duration of infectivity, how long you're shedding virus. So interesting variables there. But the number means the number of secondary infections that can arise in a population of susceptible hosts from a single infected individual on average. It's an average number. You can usually calculate this early in an outbreak when there are no interventions, and you can affect it. You can raise it or lower it. So if it's less than one, epidemic will end. If it's greater than one, it's an epidemic is possible. It's much greater than an epidemic is certain. So for SARS-CoV-2, it was calculated that between two and three, the beginning of the outbreak, we're trying to get it down. Sometimes it goes up because... People don't behave. They get together, they don't wear masks. The R0 goes up. People like to blame the virus, but mostly it's people that are causing these issues. And as you, as you know from this formula, it's influenced by the time of contact between people and the length of the infectious period. Of course, interventions can affect it, including vaccination. And that's what we're trying to do is get it less than one to um, end this, this outbreak. So there's an intrinsic R0 and then there's just the R factor, which is what you get when you do interventions. Here are some examples of uh, case fatality ratios and R noughts of, of different viruses. So CFR is on the y-axis. And um, you know, so it's going from 0.1 up here to very high. And so that's the percent, of course. And then R naught is on the x-axis from 0 to 15. So one of the most transmissible viruses is measles. Uh, one person on average can infect 15 other people. But I learned the other day that uh, malaria is even more transmissible, but these are just viruses. You have chickenpox there. A chickenpox is not terribly deadly, as you can see. The CFR is very low. The common cold, 2009 influenza pandemic. Seasonal flu, about 0.1 CFR. R0 just greater than one. Polio is down here. Here's SARS-CoV-2. So R0 between two and three. And you know the CFR is shown here between 0.1 and say three, but it really varies depending on where you look. And I think I have a slide to show you that in a minute. The SARS, SARS-1 was a slightly higher CFR, as you can see, and then other viruses, even more deadly. Most of them, similar transmissibility. Here's an early study out of Wuhan last year uh, of about 44,000 confirmed cases of COVID-19 just to illustrate how the case fatality rate can change. So the overall CFR, so there's 1,000 deaths in this population, 2.3%, okay? But if you stratify it by age, uh, no deaths in the zero to nine years, of course, that's changed since then, but this is based on a small number. And then as you get older, the CFR goes up. And look, at uh, over 80, it's 15%. So 
So there's not one CFR fits all. It's ter it's not right to say this virus has a 5% CFR blanket statement. It's wrong just to say that. It's even influenced by sex. Men, 2.8% CFR across all ages. Women, 1.7, and that's held to this day. It even depends on where you are. So this is CFR on the y-axis, reported deaths of the, over the reported cases as of February 20th, 2020. It's early in the epidemic, but it's you know a lot of cases early on in China. Look at Wuhan. Originally, over 20%, and then as time went on, it went down very low. Why? Well, initially, the hospitals were overwhelmed, and then they built more. <laughs> they figured out how to take care of the patients. It's all many, many variables can play into this. If you look outside of Wuhan, though, it, it was not very high. In fact, all of China, well, China was influenced by Wuhan, but here in gray, China outside of Hubei and outside Hubei outside of Wuhan, all pretty low, not overwhelmed. So having your hospitals fill up makes more people die and it increases the CFR. That's something that we have a control over. So there's no one fit all CFR. The other variable I want to tell you about is what's called K, the over-dispersion parameter. Uh, and early on, uh, importation was associated with fewer secondary cases uh, than would be expected with an R naught of two to three. And that initially suggested that not all symptomatic cases cause secondary transmission. So not everybody who's infected uh, transmit. And in fact, I was during this course last year Every day, every class, we would look at the numbers. And for the longest time, it didn't even move out of China in a big way. I never understood that. And this is why. It's because of over-dispersion. There's very high variation in who transmits, basically. And for SARS-CoV-2, you can calculate this as this K is 0.1, which means 80% of transmissions are caused by just 10% of infectious individuals. 10%. Not everyone is transmitting. And so that's why early on it took a long time for this uh, outbreak to spread. And you get these super spreader events as a consequence. Here's a report out of Hong Kong where they studied, they did contact tracing very carefully, and they could identify multiple super spreader events where one infected person went into a setting with a lot of people, like a wedding, a restaurant, a bar, a theater, social events, fam and they spread it to a lot of people. And here's one example here in B and C. And that, that way they could identify super spreader uh, environments where you should not go. There are also short chain infections, as you can see here, a large fraction of them also. Uh, but the large majority of transmission is by these, which involves an infected person in an area where that person could contact others. And we had two super spreader events at the White House last year, right? People, the whole group of people not wearing masks, one person goes in, infects 20 people. That's a super spreader event. Doesn't have to happen if you wear masks. Uh, first question, this is uh, Socrative.com. The, the room name is virus. Which of the following parameters is not influenced by human interventions, mortality rate, case fatality ratio, reproductive index, incidence, incubation period. There's a question, do we use K over dispersion parameters 
on other viruses. Yeah, any infectious agent where where people transmit it, you can determine that. Okay, how do we do here? Most of you got incubation period. In fact, all of you did. Wow. Good job. Yeah, the incubation period is intrinsic to the virus. Everything else we can um, we can modify. Question here, is the overdispersion based on pure behavior or based on differences in shedding per person? That's a good question. I think it's a combination of both. I don't think we really understand that. Let's talk about how viruses cause disease. This is going to be concerning us for the rest of this course. And this is viral pathogenesis. Pathogenesis means the process of producing disease. And there are always two components. It's not just a virus. Of course, it is in part virus replication that starts it. And viruses could damage cells and so forth. But the host is responding. And as you see with SARS-CoV-2, most of the serious disease is a host immune response, not just virus reproduction. So two components, the virus and the host. And when we study pathogenesis, many people study this. They want to understand how viruses cause disease. Many questions, some of which are shown here, just to give you an idea. How does the virus get in? Where does it get in? Uh, what's the initial host response? Where does the virus multiply? How does the virus spread? What kinds of tissues are infected? How does the host respond? Interferon, antibodies, T-cells, all sorts of other cells that we'll talk about. Uh, is the infection cleared or does it stay forever? We're going to have lectures specifically on that. And then how is it transmitted to other hosts? So to, let's talk about the very beginning of an infection. We have three requirements to establish an infection. We need enough virus. And everyone would like to know how much SARS-CoV-2 you need. And I can't tell you. Um, and we need more experience with this. For noroviruses that cause gastroenteritis, you need 10 infectious virus particles. I suspect you need hundreds or thousands of SARS-CoV-2. But we just don't know. We need to have cells at the site of entry that are accessible and, of course, susceptible and permissive, meaning they have receptors and the virus can reproduce in them. And local antiviral defenses either have to be absent or overcome. In some tissues, there, there's very little defenses, as we'll see later. In some cases, the virus multiplies to high levels and antagonizes host defenses, and we'll talk about that as well. But by far, most infections don't have any outcome because we can handle them. Our bodies actually have a limited spectrum of entry sites for infection, and they're shown here. We have a, a variety of um, mucosal surfaces. You know, unfortunately, we have to absorb and get rid of <laughs> nutrients and waste. So we have mucosal surfaces that are prime entry sites, respiratory mucosa, alimentary urogenital mucosa. Now, we have this wonderful organ called the skin, which is great, biggest organ in the body, really protective because the outer layer is dead, so it's hard to get infected unless you get a mosquito bite or an insect bite, scratches and injury, uh, needle sticks, and so forth. Um, and so those are the main ways that viruses get into us, either a mucosal site or through the skin. So let's talk about these. Skin, as I said, biggest organ in the body. Outer layer is dead, dead cells. Viruses can't reproduce in dead cells. Great uh, defense, right? Below it, the epidermis, the cells below the dead layer, 
they're living. And so if the virus can get in there by a mosquito bite or a needle stick or a stretch, then, then the virus will multiply. And then below the epidermis, you have blood vessels, lymph vessels, and immune cells moving around and so forth. And so if a virus gets down there, it can enter the bloodstream, as we'll see, and move to other places from the skin. Now, when mosquitoes bite, this is a video here I made. You should check it out, how mosquitoes spread viruses. They actually look for a blood vessel. They need to take a blood meal, right? So they're probing. It's amazing. You watch them probe and probe. Eventually, they they find a vessel. They stick the proboscis in, and they start pulling blood out, and the blood vessel collapses. It's amazing. But as they're probing, they are releasing a variety of chemicals, including painkillers, so you don't feel them. And then as they're releasing these things, out comes saliva. And if they have viruses in their saliva, they infect you. So that's, um, that's how it works. We'll talk about those more later. So the skin is a great place, but we, we can't breach the skin. Mucosal surfaces, as I said, are, are ripe for infection because they're lined by living cells. The skin is lined with dead cells, right? You can't have dead cells on your respiratory tract because then you wouldn't be able to take in air and get rid of waste. What part of the skin do viruses have to reach? Anything below the stratum corneum. The stratum corneum is the dead layer. Any other part of the epidermis, the stratum malpighi or below, it's good enough to get started. All right, let's talk about mucosal surfaces, the respiratory tract, right? You breathe in and out six liters of air a minute. It's a lot of sampling of the, of the air around you. If the air is full of viruses, you're going to breathe them in, right? You breathe them in typically through your nose, the upper respiratory tract, and then uh, it goes down through the trachea and the bronchi, bronchioles, and down to the alveoli, of course, and then back out again. Constantly, many times a minute, in and out, and viruses have a, a free ride in. Of course, this whole tract is lined with epithelial cells, as you can see here on the left, and these are typically ciliated cells. There are different kinds of cells in the in the epithelium. Here's a goblet cell that makes the mucus because these cells are all lined with a mucus layer. That's part of the physical defenses in the respiratory tract, as we'll see later. Uh, and viruses can, can get through that and, and reproduce in these uh, epithelial cells. Now, the respiratory tract has defenses in, in addition to the mucus layer, which has a variety of nonspecific defenses, including... Now, antibodies can be present there. Now, we have this mucociliary elevator. So down all the way down to the lower parts of your lung, we have these ciliated epithelial cells that are constantly beating, and it brings mucus up. So you inhale viruses, they get trapped in the mucus, and then the elevator brings them back up, and what happens? You swallow them. That's the way that they're gotten rid of. And that's why we find SARS-CoV-2 RNA in feces. I'm not convinced that it reproduces in the gut. It's just swallowed and passes through. Anyway, this brings out a lot of particles that go down into the lower lungs uh, as well. But viruses, of course, can infect these cells successfully. They can infect the upper tract. They can move down into the lower tract. Upper tract infections are typically mild, common code, pharyngitis, laryngitis. These are the viruses that can cause these clinical manifestations. When viruses get into the lower tract, it's more serious because then you can have uh, up to bronchopneumonia where the viruses are damaging in some way the alveoli and, and gas exchange is compromised. Fluids can fill in to the lung because the barrier is compromised and that's basically pneumonia 
you're, you're drowning in your own fluids. And many viruses can do both. They can cause upper and lower uh, respiratory tract infections. And of course, SARS-CoV-2 is no exception. Starts in the upper tract. And the upper tract, of course, is very good for shedding. Well, the virus coming out of these cells can be exhaled, as we'll see, harder to exhale from the lower tract. Um, if a virus were confined to there, it would be difficult to spread to uh, other hosts. Uh, the alimentary tract is also a good site of infection. Not everything is inhaled. We eat many viruses in our food, and some of those are pathogenic. Uh, so our alimentary tract, of course, starting with the mouth and going through the stomach, the lar small and large intestine, and the anus, uh, many sites of infection. Here's a diagram of the uh, intestinal tract to give you an idea of the structure. At the bottom is the low-resolution diagram where we have the lumen of the gut, the tube, the inside of the tube, and it's lined with uh, epithelial cells, very much like the respiratory tract. And these are arranged in villi, of course. Uh, and these turn over very quickly, like the respiratory tract cells. Uh, and below that is, is connective tissue, and eventually more cells, muscle cells, and so forth, blood vessels and lymph cells. And to, to look at these in higher magnification on top here, here are the uh, ciliated epithelial cells. In the gut, they're called enterocytes. You can see them there. And these, uh, these have below them what we call a basement membrane. It's a, a structure made of a variety of, of large molecules that's protective. It's a barrier uh, to, to letting things get in. And uh, throughout the intestine are these cells called M cells or microfold cells. And these are sites where immune cells come and sample the uh, antigen contents of the intestinal lumen. And uh, some of these cells can actually breach the basement membrane if there's a problem here. Um, and um, many, some viruses actually get into the, uh, the, the, the tissues below via uh, these M cells. So here's a, an electron micrograph just to show you this. Here's an enterocyte on either side of an M cell. Below it are lymphocytes, and these little particles are, are viruses, real viruses in particular, bind to M cells. And because M cells are very active in pulling material from the apical to the basolateral side, uh, viruses can take a ride on those pathways as well. Your genital tract also is a mucosal system protected by mucus and low pH. Um, but uh, can be infected. Minute abrasions from sexual activity can allow viruses to enter. Some viruses that infect these tissues, human papillomaviruses, stay, stay locally and produce warts, and others spread. HIV and herpes simplex viruses, for example, will initially infect the urogenital tract and then spread systemically. And we'll talk more about those later. Eye can be a portal of entry of viruses. Uh, the eye, of course, has many different kinds of, of tissues. The ones that would be uh, susceptible to infection are these outer, uh, this outer layer, the conjunctival epithelial cells, which goes from the eyelid across the front of the eye. And so those can be infected with a variety of viruses. The corneal stromal fibroblasts are also infectable, as well as the corneal epithelial cells. And in some cases, these infections can cause blindness, as we will see later. Uh, in, in some cases with respiratory viruses like influenza and probably SARS-CoV-2, uh, there is a duct, 
which is not shown here, the, the lacrimal duct that drains the tears from the eye into the nose, and the viruses can reproduce uh, in the eye and drain into the respiratory tract that way. Some viruses cause this bleeding, uh, as you can see here, this red subconjunctival bleed as a consequence of uh, reproducing in eye tissues. Fetus can also be a site of virus uh, replication. Uh, the, the fetus, of course, is very well protected by the placenta, which we've touched on very briefly, these syncytiotrophoblasts, this suffused layer of cells caused by syncytion, which used to be an envelope of glycoprotein of a retrovirus. Some viruses can actually cross these placental tissues. They have developed the ability to do that, like Zika virus. When the mother is infected by a mosquito bite, uh, the virus can reproduce in, in maternal tissues and then cross um, into the placental circulation. So that's transplacental infections, and, and a number of viruses do that. They're, and other pathogens, they're called torch pathogens, toxoplasma, rubella, cytomegalovirus, HIV, and others. Oh, is the other. And Zika was the most recently added one. Uh, and then there's, of course, perinatal infection, where during birth there is blood, of course, during the birthing process, and if the blood has virus, it can contaminate the uh, the, the baby at birth. And um, so transplacental, virus crossing, perinatal, simply contaminating um, the, the, the baby at birth. And this is all called vertical transmission from mother, mother uh, to child. Someone asked, do I think uh, COVID via eye is a concern? In healthcare workers, it is. So healthcare workers, someone who sees, you know, dozens of, COVID patients a day, they should use eye protection because they have a higher chance of the virus getting into their eye as well as the upper tract. You know, how much it actually contributes, we don't really know. Uh, question two, the outer layer of which of the following is dead but can still serve as a portal of virus entry? Respiratory tract, elementary tract, eye, skin, urogenital tract. <laughs> I never heard this question. What about transmission through ears? There's some epithelial there. I don't know of any viral transmission through ears. You would think it would, though, wouldn't you? That's the first time I've heard that. All right, what do we have here? 95% uh, skin. It should have been 100%. Skin has got the dead cells, right? Sorry, we've gone into, we've entered the host, then we have the virus spreads typically somewhere else. And actually, not all viruses go far. Some remain localized. If a respiratory virus, for example, could spread within the epithelium um, but doesn't get beyond it, it stays, say, in the upper tract, and then spreading to the lower tract would be more extensive, right? And for the most part, you know, the, the tissue structure constrains the spread of the immune system. So, you know, if you have one of these respiratory epithelial cells infected, you know, the virus could be released to the neighboring ones. It can spread up and down that way. It can be released into the mucus and spread extensively. But other viruses clearly have extensive spreading. We call these disseminated infections, and they're systemic if other organs are infection. And in order for this to happen, both physical and immune barriers have to be breached. So let's take a look at how this might happen. Here we have our intestinal epithelium again with two enterocytes and an M cell, and there's a basement membrane down here. Basement membrane, as I said, is you know high molecular weight carbohydrates and proteins. 
that form a barrier so that materials just don't just don't pass from the lumen into the underlying tissues. Why do we care? Because there are blood vessels and lymph vessels there. Once a virus got in there, it can get anywhere. Also, these tight junctions are important for that as well. But the process of inflammation, what is inflammation? It's your immune response when you're infected and a pathogen is sensed, as we'll see next time, by the immune system. Your immune system makes cytokines and chemokines. Cells come in, and that's all that is inflammation. And inflammation can break down this basement membrane, unfortunately. The reason is that immune cells need to get through it to see what's going on there. Uh, but in the process, you break it down and viruses can get underneath. So that's how many viruses can spread from the respiratory tract uh, to other tissues. Another determinant of how viruses spread is how they're released from the cells. And we, for a polarized layer of cells, so respiratory epithelium has an apical and a basolateral side. They're chemically different. And where the virus is released obviously makes a big difference. So apical release facilitates dispersal, of course. So poliovirus is apically released from the gut epithelium. It's released into the lumen of the gut and spreads very effectively in the feces to other people. And so here's an example, influenza virus being released apically and measles virus being released apically. Uh, but basolateral release gives you access to the underlying tissues, and that can allow systemic spread. Here's an example of vesicular stomatitis virus, which is being released at the basolateral domain. And so that potentially could get through the basement membrane if it were compromised by inflammation. So I want to tell you an example which illustrates this beautifully. Sendai virus is a paramyxovirus. So that's the family that contains measles virus. But Sendai virus, yes, it was first isolated in Sendai, Japan, back in the day where we, we didn't care about naming viruses after cities. Now, now people are very sensitive about that. This is a, a virus that people use to study pathogenesis in mice. It infects mice. It's not a human virus. And normally the virus is released apically. You infect mice, the respiratory tract, and the virus reproduces in the respiratory epithelium. It's, it's released apically, and you know the mice develop a respiratory disease. Uh, but you can make a one amino acid change in the spike glycoprotein of this virus, and it now gives it the ability to be released both apically and basolaterally. And so that virus now gets into the circulation of the mice and causes lethal systemic disease, infects many other organs. So the simple ability to be released basolaterally is really important for spread uh, of these viruses. I suspect that SARS-CoV-2 is simply apically released, as is influenza virus and many other respiratory viruses. Very little virus in the blood, and I think the systemic effects are largely immune-mediated. Uh, how does the spike aid in release since usually spike is for entry. Well, remember budding, you have a spike put into the membrane and um, the spike sequence can probably determine where in the cell, apical or basolateral, the budding, the initial putting of the spike in the plasma membrane occurs. We can then spread in the blood once we get past that basement membrane. Here's our epithelial surface, right? Respiratory, GI, whatever. Nice basement membrane. And then below it, of course, are capillaries, both uh, blood capillaries and lymph capillaries. And so if, the vi if inflammation is compromised, this 
basement membrane. If basal lateral release is occurring, the virus can get into these underlying tissues. It can enter lymph capillaries. They tend to be more permeable than blood capillaries. The virus could also get into blood capillaries. And of course, if you get into the lymph system, you go through a local lymph node and eventually you get back into the blood. So you can go everywhere and spread of viruses in the blood is called hematogenous spread. And that leads to a viremia. Viremia means virus in the blood. And here's an example of it. This is an experimental viremia. So someone asked about Sendai basal lateral. That's just in the laboratory in mice, just to illustrate the importance of basal lateral release. Here in this experiment, we have infected mice uh, with a virus. We, we inject the virus into the tail vein, and then we're measuring virus uh, in the blood at different times after infection. And so here, day zero, that's what we put in. That's the inoculum. So we call this a passive viremia. There's no reproduction yet. It's just what you put in. And much of that is cleared, but some of it presumably uh, finds some susceptible cells and reproduces in them. And then you get a primary viremia. And that's the virus in the blood produced by that initial round of multiplication. Uh, with time, it goes down and then it goes up again, secondary viremia. And what's happened here is that this primary viremia has allowed the virus to spread to multiple other tissues. Now it's multiplying in them, getting back into the blood, and you have a secondary viremia. So two concepts here. There's a passive viremia, which is what you get when you're inoculated, and then there's an active viremia made by multiplication, primary and secondary. Now, of course, this has consequences, many consequences. The blood supply, right? We don't know how to make blood. We have to get it from donors, so we have to check it for all the viruses that we think are bad. And we can use the blood to diagnose some viral infections, right? We don't use it to diagnose SARS-CoV-2 because there's not a big viremia. It's not part of the natural pathogenesis. It's an accident in my view. We look at nasopharyngeal washes, which are really convenient, but not quantitative, right? If you take a mill of blood, now you can, you can do virus titer per milliliter. And that's what we do with HIV very easily. And it's hard to quantify infection with a, with a nasal swab because you're getting, you know, different volumes, different sampling of the mucosa and so forth. Now, here's an example of all of this as worked out by a virus uh, that infects mice, small, mouse pox virus, a relative of, of smallpox of humans, but used as a model for understanding how viruses enter and spread. So here in the mouse, you inoculate on day zero into the foot pad foot pad underneath there, right underneath the feet. Why do we do that? Well, this is how the mice get it in nature. They're walking around on the forest floor and they have little cracks in their foot pads and there are viruses there shed by other mice and they pick it up. It's like, it's like you walking through a locker room without flip-flops. You've got cracks in the bottom of your feet. You're picking up papillomaviruses from other people and that's how you get warts. So don't do it. Use flip-flops. Um, so you inoculate in the foot pad the virus multiplies there in the skin. We're, we're putting a needle in, so we're getting past the dead layer. Virus multiplies in the skin cells, then gets into the lymph, through the lymph node, and into the blood. And you have your primary viremia, because it's actually a consequence of reproduction of the virus at that site. Primary viremia brings the virus to other organs, spleen, and liver, 
where it can reproduce and it gets back in the blood, we have a secondary viremia. And then that brings the virus to the skin, back to the skin, and you get lesions. All right, so that's the spread of the virus, this the so-called incubation period. Now we have disease because we can see what's going on here. We have swelling of the foot. That's where we've actually put the virus initially. And then after the secondary viremia and spread to the skin, we get a rash. Viruses come back to the skin by this secondary viremia. So this really informs our understanding of how viruses that spread through the blood actually do this. Not all viruses do this, of course, but as we'll see later, measles virus does this. It's a respiratory infection, but the virus gets into the blood and spreads to the skin via the blood, very much like this. A number of human viruses called, cause rashes. Here's a list of human viruses uh, and the diseases that they cause and the kind of rash. They have different names depending on what they look like. Here are examples of all different uh, rashes. Here you have maculo papular rashes, um, which are which are a mixture of flat and raised rashes. You have vesicular rashes where, you know, they're clearly raised and full of fluids. They also can be on different parts of the body, trunk versus, uh, sorry, the main part of the body, the trunk versus the, the appendages or all over the body. Um, measles, for example, tends to be all over as the smallpox. Smallpox is a, is a really nasty one, as you can see here. This is chickenpox rash. Um, most of the time, this rash is caused by virus homing to the skin and multiplying, but there's also an immune component. Immune cells are coming in and causing the redness and the, uh, the um, accumulation of fluid. Our next question, which of the following assist in viral dissemination in the infected animal? Viremia, basal lateral release from epithelial cells, movement through the lymphatic system, inflammation at the basement membrane, all of the above. In general, you should not eat before virology class. In fact, in previous years, some students have said after hearing this class, they're not going to eat anything. Plants, chickens, beef. Are there veterinarian virologists? Absolutely. Totally. Yeah. There's a lot of uh, viral infections of, uh, of animals, um, not just your pets, you know agricultural animals, really important, large animals, horses and cows and pigs, chickens and ducks, all the farmed animals, zoo animals. is a huge, absolutely huge. Yeah. There are lots of very good veterinary virologists. They have their own vaccines. They have their own antivirals for animals. Yeah. Very interesting stuff. What do we have here? hundred percent. Only 30 of you, <laughs> but it's good. They're all right. Absolutely good. Good. Is smallpox still around or has it been eradicated? Well, the virus is still around. It's in freezers, supposedly, let me not show that yet, supposedly in Moscow and Atlanta, Georgia. CDC in Atlanta and Moscow. But all right, so there's a lot of debate over whether to destroy it or not, those last stocks. And they haven't, they've decided not to for now. But we have the sequence, so anyone could remake it. Yeah, Demon in the Freezer is a good book about this. The problem is the Soviet Union made hundreds of liters of smallpox virus. They tried to weaponize it, and it didn't work. Nobody knows what happened to that virus. There's, there's some theory that somebody else got it, and it's somewhere in the world, right? 
this is why the U.S. military still vaccinates against smallpox, because they're worried that uh, it, it would be used as a weapon one day. And the U.S. actually has a stockpile of smallpox vaccine, a few hundred million doses, and a stockpile of two antivirals. We are ready for smallpox, like we weren't ready for SARS-CoV-2. All right, we, sp we just talked about spreading through the blood, uh, but now let's talk about spreading other ways. We, viruses can spread through nerves, neural spread. And here are some examples of this. So we have, um, let's do the upper right first. We have a nerve with uh, its cell body and then, you know, uh, an, an axon and um, then the, the nerve termini there at the right. And as you know, materials can move throughout this uh, axon. Uh, there are, there are mechanisms for bringing materials from the cell body away and from the uh, the, the termini, the synapse, back to the cell body, and that happens on vesicles carried by um, on by motor proteins on microtubules, and that's shown here. There are kinesins that bring that are motor proteins that bring cargo in one direction, and dynines are the motors that bring it in the other direction. You know, and that's called anterograde and retrograde transport, retrograde towards the cell body. And viruses travel in nerves this way. So here is a, a herpes virus that's been endocytosed uh, at the synapse, and it's being its vesicle is being transported uh, in a vesicle by kinesin all the way up to the cell body, where it's going to get in and reproduce. And it's the same way um, the viruses that are made can be transported the other way, and eventually they'll acquire a membrane down at the other end. So um, we'll talk about the consequences of this later. Many many viruses can travel in uh, axons uh, this way of nerve cells. And so they could, for example, on this big picture here on the left, here's our spinal cord, right, and the nerves that are coming into it. We have nerves connected to the skin, sensory nerves, and so some viruses can infect sensory nerve endings and, and move into the spinal cord. And uh, many infect motor nerves that end up in the muscle, right? These nerves control muscle activity. And so there are synapses, there are motor end plates. Viruses can get into those as well and travel up uh, to the spinal cord as well. So a number of viruses can do this. Not every virus travels in nerves. Not every virus gets into the central nervous system. The ability of viruses to travel in nerves has actually been used to map neural circuits. So people who are interested in circuitry, they take like a herpes virus and they put a green fluorescent protein gene in it, and then they can stereotactically inoculate that in an animal at one very specific part of the brain, and then they can watch the virus move synaptically in the circuit. And they can map the circuits this way. It's really, it's just amazing. And you can see that as an example here of all these circuits that where they put in a single uh, vir in, virus and in, in herpes virus with GFP at one point, it's spread synaptically throughout. Now, when we talk about uh, infections of the central nervous system, there's some terminology we need to remember. And that includes the word neurotropic, which means the virus infects nerve cells. You know, we can add tropic onto almost any cell name and, and and get an example. For example, enterotropic would be a virus that infects the enteric system, hepatotropic, okay? So neurotropic infects neural cells. 
And the virus can get there by neural spread, by blood spread, doesn't really matter. Now, neuroinvasive virus can enter the CNS after it gets in at the periphery. So if a virus infects your skin and enters a nerve and gets into the CNS, that's a neuroinvasive virus. And then a neurovirulent virus can cause disease of nervous tissue. So neurotropic just means it multiplies, no implications for disease. Neurovirulent means it causes disease. So let's look at some examples. Herpes simplex virus has low neuroinvasiveness. So most of the time when you get a herpes simplex infection, it stays peripherally, but occasionally it gets into the CNS. Uh, and once it's there, it's, it's quite neurovirulent. So low neuroinvasiveness, but if it gets in high neurovirulence, and of course it's neurotropic, to be able to cause disease, you have to be able to replicate. Mumps virus. This used to be a common virus infection of kids before the mumps vaccine. And it has high neuroinvasiveness, actually. About half of kids or more who had mumps actually have evidence of virus in the brain, but low neurovirulence, fortunately. Most of those kids did not develop CNS disease. And rabies is the worst. It's highly neuroinvasive and highly neurovirulent. So unless you're vaccinated, the virus is going to get into the CNS and it's going to cause problems. And that's why in an unvaccinated person, 99.9% fatal. That's the virus that scares me. That's the most lethal one, not others. 100% lethality? There's nothing like it without being vaccinated, of course. Now, when you're in the blood, the virus could, in fact, yeah, someone asked, do viruses that get in the CNS have to pass the blood-brain barrier? That's what we're going to talk about now. How does the virus get from the blood into various tissues? And there are three general types of blood tissue junction that we have to talk about. All right, and they're shown here. It goes from easy to hard, from left to right, for the virus to get out of the blood. On the left, we have what's called a sinusoid. It's, it's a poor excuse for a blood vessel. It's just, a, it's just the endothelial cells are sitting in a, a space in the tissue. They're not even joined together. This is like the liver and spleen and bone marrow. And um, the virus can go through it. It's carried through the blood, of course. It's very easy for it to get into the tissues around it. So in the liver, viruses have no problem getting into hepatocytes because of this, assuming there's a receptor on the hepatocytes, of course. And then the intermediate one, we, we have added a basement membrane. Right? We have endothelial cells, which make up the blood vessel walls, of course. They have, they have junctions now, but they're still pores. But there's a basement membrane uh, similar to the one we had at the bottom of our epithelial layer. For. So this offers a little more protection. These are the kinds of uh, tissues you would find that. And then the really tight one is in the brain and, and muscle and lungs and so forth. And here we have endothelial cells, which are joined, very tight junctions. There is a junction here, but you can't see it. You'll see it in another slide. And then there's a basement membrane. So here it's very difficult for viruses to just casually get across, casually, but they do. Of course, some do. Not every virus will do that. And so if you have a, a blood vessel with that third version of um, protection, if it were in the brain, you would call it the blood-brain barrier. You have a, a basement membrane. You have tightly joined epithelial cells. Viruses can still get across. And here are some of the mechanisms for traversing that. Uh, you can have infection of immune cells. Immune cells actually can squeeze through these junctions. They have the ability to do it. Uh, they get, look at this, they squeeze through the tight junctions between the 
endothelial cells. And if they're infected, they're going to bring virus with it. And of course, HIV infects lymphocytes. And so they get out of the blood that way. Uh, some, some viruses actually reproduce in endothelial cells. How wicked is that, right? You reproduce, you cause inflammation, the basement membrane breaks down, they leave. Or transcytosis, virus can uh, get taken up into an endosome and then get released on the other side and uh, and get out as well. So there are ways to get across. As I said, it's relatively rare. Not all viruses can can do this, especially in the CNS. And here's now the CNS to kind of summarize all of this. You know, throughout the CNS, there are capillaries, of course, blood capillaries. And they're very well protected. As we've just seen, there is there are very tight junctions among the epithelial endothelial cells. Sorry, there's a basement membrane, and there's also um, the the astrocytes wrap around the capillaries. These are astrocyte foot processes. You know, the, the CNS is full of astrocytes that have a variety of roles, including here's the cell body here, the astrocyte protecting and forming a blood-brain barrier. Nevertheless, viruses can get into the brain. They can get in by neural pathways, as we've discussed here, from peripheral nerve endings or nasal mucosa. You know, you have nerve endings in your nose for for transmitting scent, right? And if they they get infected, the virus can cross the into the brain through them because they pass through the bone. So we can have viruses entering uh, by nerves, but also we can have viruses entering in capillaries, blood vessels in various parts of the brain, cerebral blood vessels, meningeal blood vessels, viruses coming through uh, either by infecting endothelial cells through immune cells. Uh, and then there's one other place uh, where, where special things happen. That's in the choroid plexus. The choroid plexus is part of the brain that manufactures cerebrospinal fluid. The um, blood vessels in the choroid plexus are are more permeable than in other parts of the brain. They don't have this great defense. And so it's possible for viruses to uh, get out of those choroid plexus vessels and into the CSF. And then once they're in the CSF, of course, they can spread uh, throughout the brain. So, you know, we have good barriers, but nothing's perfect. And they keep out most viruses, but some can get in. Although, as I'll argue later, Viruses getting into the brain is an accident. It's a dead end. It's not going anywhere. Um, it's not going to be transmitted to a new host. There are better ways to transmit that we've talked about. Speaking of transmission, what is transmission? Spread of infection from one host to another. And you need to do this to maintain a, a chain of infection. Otherwise, the infection is going to stop, right? And we have two general patterns that we can recognize. We can go animal to animal, whether it's human-human or dog-dog or whatever. Animal to animal, no intermediary. Respiratory droplets, for example, fecal contamination, that's one. And the other is animal vector animal. What's a vector? Typically an insect of some kind. Here it's a tick. It could be a mosquito. There are others that spread virus infections. So we have uh, an infected rodent. The tick is picking up a blood meal. It gets a virus in the blood. The tick then spreads it by biting another animal. And this could, of course, be a mosquito as well. And we'll talk about that in a little more detail. Uh, sometimes the virus uh, gets into the ova 
of the tick and can be spread transoverally to other ticks. Okay, so two patterns, animal, 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 vector, animal. That's the way we see it all. And again, in transmission, we have terms. Members of the same species, horizontal transmission. If I sneeze in your face and infect you, that's horizontal transmission. Does the virus replicate in the insect? I'm sorry. Yes. Uh, for the most part, it must replicate in the insect, whether it's a tick or a mosquito, for sure. I think we're going to talk about that again. So people to people, pig to pig, chicken to chicken, it's horizontal transmission. If we get infected by a bat, that's zoonotic. If we infect a bat, you could call it reverse zoonotic infection, but the zoonotic means different species, okay? So the first SARS-CoV-2 infections of people that came from bats were zoonotic, but now they're horizontal, people to people. And when bats spread it to each other, that's horizontal as well. Vertical, of course, mother to child. I described that. Iatrogenic, if a healthcare worker infects you because they're, they're using a contaminated needle or doing something not right, and nosocomial, if you get infected in a hospital or a healthcare facility. And then, of course, germline transmission is when it's transmitted as part of a genome. So that's a good picture, horizontal and vertical transmission. That's why it's called vertical. Part of transmission can be shedding of a virus. Shedding is when virus comes out of you. And of course, if you are infected with respiratory virus, you have virus in respiratory secretions in your gut. It's shed mucosal cells into the feces. Uh, you can have virus in urine. You can have virus in semen. Uh, you can have virus in skin lesions. Uh, you can be cut and bleeding and transmit infection to another. So these are all cases where virus is leaving you in some way, and that's how it's transmitted to another person. That, that transmission is from one person to another. You don't have to shed, though, to infect another person to be transmitted. These are examples where shedding is not needed. A blood supply, if, if uh, you donate blood and it's contaminated and they don't pick it up and they inject it into someone else, you give them the infection. But the virus is not really shed, right? Shedding means out there in the environment. And we've done that many times for many viruses. We have given people infections through the blood supply. Insect vectors, they take a blood meal and they fly off and bite someone else. So there's no shedding. Germline transmission, of course, passing it on in your DNA. There's no shedding. And then a vertical asterisk because, you know, transplacental infection is not really shedding, right? Although if it's perinatal, if it's at birth, you know, blood contamination, that's shedding. So there's some cases where you're not actually shedding. But certainly SARS-CoV-2 is shed. And it's shed this way in respiratory secretions. And, you know, when you cough or sneeze or even speak, you make little droplets which are captured in this photo of this young lady sneezing. And you can see right away that some of them are big and they fall to the ground and some of them are smaller and they stay suspended. And we can quantify that. We have droplets of different sizes. We have large infectious droplets that fall to the ground at a couple of feet. We have small infectious droplets, three to five feet. And we have infectious droplet nuclei that go far. And many of these are produced at the initial uh, sneeze or whatever. Breathing does this as well, by the way. You don't have to sneeze or cough. Uh, but many of these droplets can dry and get smaller and go farther. So when there's less humidity, like in the wintertime with the heat on, 
the droplets tend to dry out and travel farther. So this is the magic six feet for SARS-CoV-2, right? Because we believe that virus is transmitted mostly in large and small infectious droplets. So we think if you stay six feet away, you'll avoid that. Now, why isn't it present in these small droplets? Probably there isn't enough virus in them to infect people, although maybe if someone is shedding more higher titers, they could do it. There's some anecdotal evidence of infectious droplet nuclei spread with SARS-CoV-2, but it's the exception. Mostly it's one to five feet. That's most of the transmission. There's also, you know, hand contamination, nasal secretions on hands, tissues, subway poles, et cetera. About, I think about 10% of transmission of SARS-CoV-2 is, is uh, done that way. Here's an interesting study published a couple of years ago. This machine is called the Gesundheit 2, this thing that's <laughs> where this guy is putting his head in. And what they do is they get college students to uh, volunteer, and they had confirmed influenza. And they had you sit in front of this for a half hour and go through the alphabet, you know, say different words. And later they wiped off the inside and, and they looked for infectious virus. And that they found was um, uh, virus is shed in fine aerosols produced by breathing and speaking. You don't have to cough. In fact, sneezing doesn't make an important contribution to virus shedding, at least for influenza. And not, neither did coughing. Just breathing. That's why a mask is good. And that's why you have to wear it over your nose, folks. I know you all knew that, but I see so many people with their nose sticking out. Are there any data on nosocomial SARS-CoV-2? Yeah, for sure there have been nosocomial infections. It's in the literature. So with different viruses, there are different kinetics of shedding and transmissibility. Here are three just so that you can compare here, SARS 2003, the original SARS. So we have uh, the, the, this infection happening here and we have incubation period of four to five days and then the onset of, of infectiousness or virus shedding. And the peak is about 10 days after the onset of symptoms. So here's symptom onset, it's that red bar there. And the peak, this is 10 days after symptom onset where you have the peak of shedding. And as I said, most of the people with SARS-1 were in the hospital. Over 50% were in the hospital at this point. So that's why we could contain the outbreak. Here's seasonal influenza. Incubation period, two days. Here's your incubation period and onset of symptoms, the red bar. So the you start to shed about two days before the onset of symptoms. You have a peak at about one day after onset. See, it's about one day right there. And then the shedding ends six to eight days after the onset. Here, you can be mildly or asymptomatic and be shedding very high titers for influenza. And that's why it's community spread. Whereas, you know, SARS-CoV-2, much less community spread. And here we have SARS, SARS-1, I meant to say. Here's SARS-CoV-2. 14-day incubation period, five-day average. That's your infection. That's your incubation period. You can see that the shedding begins two or three days before symptom onset, and the peak of shedding is at or about one day after symptom onset. And so that's a community shed virus, very much like influenza virus, very different from SARS-1. So, And this is also transmitted during the incubation period, 
which remember I told you not all viruses are transmitted during the incubation period and also from asymptomatically infected people. All right, our last question for today, which statement about transmission, viral transmission is not correct. All virus infections are transmitted by shedding. The route is determined by the site of virus shedding. Transmission is required to maintain a chain of infection. Speaking can produce an aerosol that can transmit infection. Horizontal transmission is among members of one species. All right, thank you very much. So the wrong statement is, hey, all virus infections are transmitted by shedding. No, some are not, like the blood supply, germline, mosquitoes, transplacental. Those are not shedding. Geography can restrict where a virus is. It makes It's very clear if you need a specific vector or an animal reservoir, if you need a certain mosquito or tick, it's not going to be everywhere. And animal reservoir, well, Ebola virus infections only happen in areas where Ebola viruses are endemic in probably certain bats. But we don't have any initiation of Ebola virus uh, in the U.S. We don't seem to have it in bats here. And a good example is chikungunya virus, an example of how the vector can affect localization of infection. This is a virus that is spread uh, by a mosquito, and the infection causes um, in the unique symptoms are joint pains, arthritis, and arthralgias. Um, and the um, original vector for this virus was Aedes aegypti. And um, <clears throat> later, as you'll see in a moment, uh, the virus changed and, and acquired the ability to to do high replication in a different mosquito, Aedes albopictus, which has a greater range in the U.S. It goes farther north, as you can see here. So we're a little worried that this uh, virus may become established in the U.S. Um, it is an alpha virus, <clears throat> the toga virus in the alpha virus genus, which is a plus-stranded RNA virus with a icosahedral capsid and a membrane around it and uh, glycoproteins that are flat on the, on the surface. The original uh, isolates were spread by Aedes aegypti, and infection led to rash, fever, and joint pains. It was um, originally only seen in Asia and Africa for many years, never in Europe uh, or the U.S., until 2004 when there was an outbreak uh, in Kenya. It spread to, uh, to India. Uh, and then in 2007, uh, there was an outbreak in Italy, the first in Europe. And one of the first uh, outbreaks that led to the spread was one in Réunion, an island, a French island off Madagascar. And a, a number of people brought the infection back uh, to France, coming back from their holidays. And so these are the original uh, Asian and African countries in blue. And then it has since spread, for example, Australia, Japan, Europe. Scandinavian country. So what happened? Why did it change? All of a sudden in 2004, the, the geographic range of this virus changed. Well, uh, these recent outbreaks are associated with a different mosquito, Asian tiger mosquito, Aedes albopictus, which uh, is um, has been spread globally in um, used tires that are transported around the world on ships and you can never get rid of all the water in a tire. 
if you think about it, no matter how you position it, it's always going to have water and the water breeds mosquitoes. And these ships, these ships, they don't want to cover the tires. It costs money. They just transport the tires out on deck and the tires bring mosquitoes. And 80s Albopictus never was in the U.S. And it entered in Houston, in the port of Houston one year, number of years ago, and now has spread throughout the U.S. A very hardy mosquito. Now, chick, chikungunya did not reproduce well in this mosquito. However, in the early 2000s, there was a single amino acid change in the viral uh, spike. Just arose randomly, but it gave the virus better fitness in mosquitoes. It reproduced better in Aedes albopictus, and that enabled the virus to spread elsewhere that it hadn't been because Aedes aegypti doesn't go as far north as, as Aedes albopictus does. That's why the range expanded. New mosquito vector. So here's the range again of a albopictus in the U.S. It goes quite far north, you know, up till New York State here on the eastern coast. And we, in the continental U.S., we have had imported infections uh, since 2006. This is, um, no, this is not two, 2017. I think it's 2019. 192 imported cases in many states, as you can see, a lot of California imported cases. They have a lot of people who travel from other areas that, and they bring it in. These are all imported. Only two local transmissions in Puerto Rico. And that's expected because they have 80s Egypti there. But in the U.S., we only have 80s Egypti in Miami and uh, the southern border of Texas. Uh, and if there are any 80s Egypti uh, born infections, that's where they happen. But Albopictus is a concern. I think eventually this will come in and become established, especially with global warming. You can see this map down here. We have, you know, mean temperatures are the warmest month in Europe. You can see it's, it's increasing. And with this, mosquitoes will spread. So one of the effects of global warming is that you have increased ranges of the vectors and that will spread other infectious diseases like chikungunya. Now, this is not a trivial infection. After you recover, you may have arthritis for the rest of your life. And so we are developing a vaccine for it because um, it's not good. All right, the last topic, seasonality. Many virus infections are seasonal. Here is rubella before a vaccine years. You could see peaks uh, in the, the spring, summer every year. Influenza, of course, in temperate climates, which means you have a summer and a winter. It peaks in the winter every year. You know, we are um, just moving past the peak of influenza here. Starts it around October, November, goes till May. And even poliomyelitis actually was seasonal uh, according to the latitude. So, you know, in, in Alaska, it peaked in September. In Perth, it peaks in March. And of course, this is when the, the summer is. This is a summer uh, disease. So what does this? Short answer, we don't know. We have some ideas, though. And our ideas come mainly for influenza virus. Both temperature and humidity influence influenza virus transmission. So here's an experiment done in guinea pigs where you can infect them with influenza virus and put them in neighboring cages and they will transmit the infection to one another through the air by droplets, right? And so this graph, we look at percent transmission among guinea pigs with two different parameters, relative humidity. Let's look at that first. So 
as we increase the relative humidity at five degrees, let's say we have the, the room at five degrees Celsius. Yeah, the guinea pigs are chilly, I know. As we increase the relative humidity, look, the transmission goes down. Why is that? Because when you increase the relative humidity, these droplets take on water and they fall to the ground quicker. So they can't go as far. So five degrees, chilly temperatures and low humidity are the best for transmission. And of course, that's what we have in the winter, right? It's, it's cold and low humidity. The droplets are small and the temperature is low that preserves virus infectivity. So temperature and humidity can explain why influenza is seasonal in a temperate climate. The problem is there also is influenza in the tropics where it's hot and humid all the time and it's seasonal and we don't get that at all. Maybe it's transmitting by a different way. And now if you, if you increase the temperature to 20 degrees, infectivity drops even quicker. And so, you know, in the, in the summer months, you have um, a lot of humidity, higher temperatures, transmission is interrupted. So, but that's just for influenza in the, in the Northeast, say. We don't really understand the seasonality of those other viruses at all. What about SARS-CoV-2? Is SARS-CoV-2 going to be seasonal? Hard to know. When there's a pandemic and everyone is not immune, that kind of trumps everything. And this virus, of course, has been transmitting for a year now. And certainly there have been peaks and troughs, but only when it becomes endemic, uh, we will see if it's seasonal or not. All right. So next time we're going to talk about host defenses. What happens when uh, viruses enter the host? How does the host respond? And how does it that set it up for antibody and T-cell production? <music>